0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog from Fuga-A to Fugazi. Joining me today to discuss version from the 1995 album Red Medicine is Joe DeGeorge, who, along with his brother Paul, is a founding member of the seminal wizard rock band Harry and the Potters, and he's also played various instruments on various other musical projects served as a composer and sound designer for podcasts video events live events and so on and apparently is like also a physicist who has worked for NASA is that does that more or less sum it up joe uh
1: yeah that's that is true i uh worked for nasa i i had an internship when i was in college but um since you know since then my chops have have been a little rusty
0: yeah, you you didn't get hired onto SpaceX or uh any any of these billionaires companies to uh help their rockets go zoom zoom?
1: No, I'm I'm not interested in working for the empire okay. as, uh, <laughs> as as I've been telling people. Uh yeah, yeah, now uh I'm working as a professional shell uh shell fisherman, so um
0: well, that's just about the the most difficult to sum up CV of maybe any guest I've had. Um, Is it? yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean most notably to our listeners they might have heard of harry and the potters i certainly did you know back when uh harry potter mania was in full swing i confess i did i i got the final book in the series at midnight and like the world was just really crazy for harry potter for quite some time um but that's a project that's been ongoing i understand and uh when did the last album come out like five years ago or so
1: um yeah, we we recorded our last album um, and toured on it. We toured on it in 2019. Oh, 2019. So, yeah. Yeah. So so pretty pretty recently, we uh, yeah kind of wrapped up wrapped up the final chapters of the story in our music. There.
0: You know, I've been thinking because I've been working on this podcast for like maybe two years. And just really yeah, had Fugazi on the brain, you know, thinking about things in terms of Fugazi. Um, but that's just two years. And you guys have been going since like, what, 2002 or something? I imagine like everything that happens in the world, there's some part of your mind that
1: sort of interprets it through a framework of Harry Potter. Is that the case? Uh, it's the stories and uh, yeah, community we've been involved in has certainly informed a lot of my uh uh, decisions and, uh, world views through the years. Um, but yeah, we, we started in 2002 kind of, yeah, you know, picking up right where Fugazi left off. So, yeah. um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that that was like a, not what they had in
0: mind with like passing the baton, but, uh, I, I'm yeah, sure. I don't, I don't <laughs> think that was it.
1: <laughs> um, but you know, uh, they were, Uh, like pretty influential, uh, for us as like DIY touring musicians, you know, as a result, you know, we, we would, we would play up to play only all ages shows, um, you know, largely like Harry Potter audiences were, uh, young, um, and we would go and tour libraries and, you know, haul around our own PA system and, uh, very much had that sort of, uh, ethic that we learned from his observing bands like, like Fugazi, um, in doing that. So, yeah. uh, yeah. Oh, oh, a lot of the, um, you know, the roads they paved, uh, I, th- I think about those a lot. So, yeah,
0: that's fantastic. I actually found out about your fandom of Fugazi via a uh, previous guest, Chris Bonner, he sent me a copy of um, Fugazi Owl Babies, which is this weird little zine-like sort of thing you made that he apparently bought at one of your shows, and I, you know, of course, I, I had heard of you, but I didn't know you were a huge Fugazi fan, and that's that's how that connection was made. It's this, it's a really interesting little thing. It's like a sort of a children's book that you chopped and screwed a little bit and and made it into a story about Fugazi.
1: Yeah, I'll maybe provide some some background uh, for that. Um... You know, while we were on tour with the Potters in the uh, in the tour van. You know, we we take a lot of comfort listening to uh, Fugazi's music, um, and uh, a lot of inspiration from that. And uh, you know, if you know morale was ever low in the van, um, at one point we ended up with these uh, tiny little stuffed owls that would live in the visor above the driver. And, uh, you know, I remember, you know, one day my brother was demoralized for something. You know, it's stressful being on tour. Yeah. So, you know, the, those owls come out and, you know, they start really bothering my brother, saying like, Paul, what are you going to let me drive, Paul? I want to <laughs> put on the red medicine tape. Can you take us to McDonald's? And then, you know, there was... in. You know, in that book, there is also the juxtaposition of these Fugazi owl babies that, you know, love Fugazi, but also really want a Big Mac. Um, <laughs> and, you know, a little bit of like the cognitive dissonance uh, in uh, I- in those two, two passions of those owls. Um, hey,
0: I like a Big Mac that, once in a while. I don't yeah, think that's
1: to... <laughs> uh, incompatible with my Fugazi fandom. <laughs> Well, you you fit right in, in that owl's nest <laughs> let me tell you Ian. yeah those those owls went on uh you know they they had their own podcast for a while uh an owl cast that i think um my yeah my my brother at one point got uh imakai to record a little intro for it the for the owl cast uh <laughs> when he went to st- when do you want to see the evens play? I don't think Ian knew exactly what uh what <laughs> my brother was asking for, but i have a I have a little recorded tidbit I can send you later if you want.
0: yeah, I would love that cool yeah <laughs> um and i I mean I guess that leads me into something I ask all my guests, which is uh, you, you, like the sort of history of your fandom. Do you remember when you first got into them
1: uh yeah, I mean i was yeah, I was a teen. Um, and I think Fugazi was, Fugazi was coming to play their show at Mass Art, uh, in Boston. And, um, so I downloaded, uh, some of their music off of Napster. I think at the time. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is like cool, cool sounding music. Um. And I went to the show because, you know, that was, Boston is notoriously horrible for, uh, having shows that aren't all ages. So, um, especially at that time. So, uh, it was exciting to be able to actually get to go to a concert. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Fugazi wa- was really like one of the first, you know, rock concerts in Boston that I was, you know, allowed to go to because it was all ages, um, and I had, I had been playing uh I'd been playing in a band as well that sometimes would play at MassArt as well, I, contemporary with some of the uh students that booked that, that show. So um it seemed like uh already like uh uh yeah, not too um not too out of my league ground to to step into. Hmm. Um so just uh went uh yeah, went to the show, uh, had a great time, but kind of um you know, I after after that I think it was more as I started touring, really learning more and appreciating uh about Fugazi, you know, reading uh reading about them in that our band could be your life book, um, you know, listening to their records, talking to other people that had seen them over the years, um, you know uh my I had a friend um my friend Jason Anderson had a song that was like it, it, he, uh, he had a word in it that was like this is one of those awesome dreams where you get to hang out with those guys from Fugazi but you're so frustrated and angry that it was just a dream <laughs> um so you know there there was all this like uh talk about Fugazi uh and uh sort of their um where they stood like morally uh in in the greater rock and roll world and where they stood as, you know, music businessmen as well. Um, and just sort of, yeah, the inspiration they they had on other artists. Um, and yeah, found myself, you know, dive in deeper and deeper into them. So um, I, I wanted to pick this song version to talk about uh, because uh, just, you know, kind of fell in love with the Red Medicine tape when we were on tour um, listening to it in the van um
0: yeah it's it seems so. like a good road album for sure and um yeah as, as far as deep dives go you've picked the right podcast to be a guest on uh that's, yeah. that's <laughs> our specialty here um that's so yeah i let's go ahead and talk about version i mean first yeah. we we uh, let's acknowledge we are bidding goodbye to the album red medicine today it's our final red medicine episode on the podcast an album that's really near and dear to my heart before we leap into talking about the the music here, uh, I have a few introductory remarks. One thing is, this is um, for people who are keeping track of Fugazi trivia as we go through the podcast. Here's one for you. Uh, this is the only song on the album that was not recorded at Inner Ear with Don and Tara. It was the liner notes say it was recorded at Guilford House uh, in uh, 1994, April of 94, which I think. Other than, uh, you know, as as hardcore Fugazi fans know, Margin Walker was not recorded at Inner Ear. That was uh, recorded in London. Um, But apart from that, and apart from the instrument soundtrack, I think that makes this the only uh, full track on a studio album not recorded at Inner Ear. So, there you go. version is unique in that way. I've got a little background on dub music. So, Joe, are, are you into dub music? Are you knowledgeable about this
1: genre? I don't have too much knowledge, but I did recognize in, uh, in some of the, um, some of the live versions of this one, they had a real big, uh, kind of slapback delay on the, the snare, yeah. um, going on. And I was like, oh, that's, that's the dub. Yeah.
0: And well, yeah. It, it turns out, um, I, I'm not too deep into dub music either um and we we know that fugazi themselves really are it's like one of their really favorite things to listen to uh, on the road and such um but yeah the, the title of the song version is is sort of deeply dub related also because uh well let me just read from wikipedia it says dub music is characterized by a quote version or double, of an existing song, often instrumental, initially almost always pressed on the B-sides of 45 RPM records, and typically emphasizing the drums and bass for a sound popular in local sound systems. And yeah, like if you go on, you know, Discogs, Wikipedia, whatever, look up um, singles of reggae artists, uh, almost always the B-side will just be the same song with parentheses version after it, Um, So it's it's got like most of the vocals removed. Um, So, uh, yeah, uh, continuing from Wikipedia quote of a version is an alternative cut of a song made for the DJ to toast over a form of Jamaican rapping, usually with some or all of the original vocal removed. These versions were used as the basis of new songs by re-recording them with new elements. The instrumental tracks are typically treated with sound effects such as echo reverb with instruments and vocals dropping in and out of the mix. The partial or total removal of vocals and other instruments tends to emphasize the bass guitar. The music sometimes features other noises, such as birds singing, thunder and lightning, water flowing, and producers shouting instructions at the musicians. It can be further augmented by live DJs. The many layered sounds with varying echoes and volumes are often said to create soundscapes or sound sculptures, drawing attention to the shape and depth of the space between sounds as well as to the sounds themselves. End quote. So, yeah, that kind of sums up the uh the spirit of dub music. Um
1: uh, that that's really illuminating uh for me because I was I was going through like really trying to figure out what they um what exactly they might have meant by uh by calling this song version. Yeah.
0: So. It's uh, it's it's kind of cool to listen to in that way. I, um mm-hmm. you know, I've I've gone on a couple of just sort of like dub excursions just putting on playlists at home and trying to get into it. From what I can tell, it's sort of like listening to you know electronic music, like um, you know Daft Punk or whatever. Where it's like to to the casual listener who's used to like listening to verse-chorus-verse structured songs, it, it sounds super repetitive. But I guess the thing is with electronic music that um, you're you're sort of just listening to it, getting yourself into the groove and appreciating the elements that get gradually added or subtracted to it when when the beat goes to double time you know some some uh little melody part gets added or whatever even though the underlying structure is continues to be the same i feel like
1: yeah and and there's there's freedom for whoever's like djing or contributing or adding adding on to whatever venue this uh you know it's being remixed in or being performed in so
0: yeah yeah certainly I also have a couple of interview quotes here. Uh, So Guy and Brendan talked to Tape Op. uh, The interviewer said, Version on Red Medicine is a standout track, a real departure musically, and also the way it was recorded, the whole sound of it. It's so much more atmospheric and not really following the whole verse chorus structure or anything. Guy says, We had the music for a long time, but in terms of the vocal and the idea of putting in the clarinet and the feedback, there's a lot of weird vocal stuff. Brendan says, like the clarinet track, we listened to it and then we laid two different clarinet tracks and then we listened to it and we realized that if you pull this part, it kind of segues into that part and it turns into sounds like a solo accidentally. In the studio, for me, that is what makes recording fun. If you know what you're shooting for, then you're trying to nail a specific thing. It's so much less interesting than showing up at the studio, everybody kind of being game to listen to what's happening, coming over the speakers to see that and to go with it. Inevitably, when we start recording, we come in with a bunch of songs and stuff that we're demoing or whatever. It changes so much the way we play together, the way I play, all the different sounds and the beat. Um, so that's that interview, and then uh, one uh, a, a very small snippet from Discant gee says yes i did play clarinet on that song version i am unschooled and lousy on it but the sound worked out every now and then i play it live and we bury it in effects to hide the awful glorious truth of my ineptness and there is an interview from pitchfork also where this is addressed where pitchfork uh, asks what made you start bringing the clarinet out was that around in on the killtaker or does it go farther back because i think i remember seeing it live around then Gee says, well, that's actually because of Jerry Busher, friend of the show, Jerry. Uh, he worked in a music store down in DuPont Circle that sold instruments, and when I went in and visited him one day, he said a clarinet had come in, and he gave me a serious discount, so I picked it up. I was just curious about it. Pitchfork, had you played before? Gee says, no, I still can't play it. I don't have any idea what I'm doing. He gave me a fingering chart and the instrument, and then showed me how to do the reeds, and I tried to teach myself how to play it. Basically, it's just a sound for me. I mean, I appreciate the instrument, and I appreciate people who can play it, but I'm not trying to fool anybody. Pitchfork. But it was a good texture? Gee. Yeah, that's the thing. It ended up sounding really cool. In that song version, it sounded really awesome, and there's some places it just kind of worked. It's an amazing instrument, I just find it really complicated. That's that's what I have uh as far as gee talking about the song.
1: Yeah, that's uh that's good. I think that you know, that speaks to a little bit of what I wanted to talk about is how like one of the things I like about this song and a lot of the other pieces of Red Medicine and is is it sort of has that um that playfulness of being in a band and experimenting with, you know, different sounds. Yeah. Um that's I think Uh, this album has more space for that than, than, uh, some of the, some of the other, or they do it in a, in a little bit of a different way. I wanted to ask
0: you in particular, um, we've had a, we've had a saxophone player on the show before, but I don't know if we've talked as Mm -hmm. specifically about that because you play the saxophone, which like the clarinet is a reed instrument. I understand. Correct. Yeah. Um, I have never in my life tried to make a sound on a reed instrument. I don't think my understanding from the outside is it can be pretty tricky to stu- to like actually make decent sounds on it. I think a lot of people sort of look at an instrument like that and they're just, Oh, I guess you blow into it. Um, good. Yeah, like, they, could you sort a of a bit of a learning curve? Yeah. Could you sort of like briefly describe how one makes sounds on a reed instrument and and why it's tricky to learn?
1: Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, it's tricky to learn cause there's, you do have to develop a little bit of, um, kind of a muscle uh muscle technique or memory or um some chops as they say yes um but you know you're blowing a stream of air uh you put pressure on that air um ideally like you know tighten up your body your gut and your your lips around the mouthpiece um what they say an embouchure and uh you you blow into it usually you uh you kind of kick the reed with your tongue to get it to start uh vibrating and then it will continue to resonate as you have a continuous stream of air um but you know it's tricky cuz you know small changes in the way you shape your mouth you know can get it uh can get wildly different sounds you can start you know squeaking a lot or <laughs> you get certain resistance or if the reed's not aligned totally uh it'll be More difficult if there's cracks, you know, all sorts of little imperfections Hmm. contribute to the to the sound. Um, And now there is also um,
0: obviously there's like you know fingering to change the pitch of the notes, but like you can you can also kind of change the pitch like just with your mouth.
1: Is that right? Yeah, if I like um, like move my jaw up and down as I'm playing, you can kind of get that like little bit of a wobble, like. It's it's like, you know, it's like the pitch wheel on a synthesizer. Yeah. If it's just like you're going up a half or a whole step, you know, within that range, but more or less you're, you know, constrained to the length of the harmonics of the length of the tube right. that you make it. It's your fingers that determine the length of the tube that the the sound is going through. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you can hear, you can hear Gee being very playful, um, with all of the, um, all of those different parameters in this instrument. Um, you know, I, uh, yeah, I often like to, I've often told people that I love to hear the sound of, uh, practicing. And I think like this, uh, yeah, although, although it's a performance that really has a lot of those playful elements of, of practice, uh, in it. Um, he really does seem to be exploring... All of the like pitch
0: range of the instrument, right? Some really low stuff, some really high stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it goes all over. And you know, you know, thinking about what you say about um, you know, those dub people having like uh, um, having like you know, environmental sounds is almost like, or you mentioned specifically thunderstorms. I was like, oh yeah, I can hear maybe that taking the place of the voice. Um, that. it it is a thunderous clarinet sound i I would say yeah there are some interesting sounds
0: going on here other than the clarinet i mean i think that's the Mm -hmm. that's the headline of the song like wow clarinet really high in the mix very very, Mm -hmm. uh uh, on front street there's yeah there's like some kind of like something that sounds like steam hissing in here there's this almost like laser-like sound going on in the background
1: sometime like I couldn't figure out what they were doing to make that, um, yeah. you know, I, I read somewhere it was a synthesizer, but I'm not you know, sure mm-hmm. that that is really what, what it was, but yeah. um, it could there... be something you could do, you know, using guitars. Yeah. I, I was, I was kind of hoping you might have
0: insight into that as more of a professional uh, musician, but, uh, alas, yeah, I was, I yeah. was
1: really curious. Um, there's, yeah, I'd lo- I'd love to hear the band talk about, you know, making this song. Yeah. But, uh, we are left a little bit to speculate.
0: There's really sort of like drums or, or percussion, at least, all over the stereo field. I'm not sure if it's like different um, tracks of hi-hats being played or just sort of the, uh, you know, capturing the hi-hats with uh, with some kind of echo and panning that left and right. But, yeah, there's sort of like hi-hats going on all over the place. Um yeah, they're they really making a, a
1: sound environment with with this.
0: Yeah, um, uh, something else that struck me is the, the way that certain at certain points the clarinet um, is captured by an echo. It's like it it's almost as if the echo is not capturing a specific pitch, but it's capturing it at this certain place where it's it's sort of like it's sort of buzzy. So. Um, mm-hmm. you know the the initial note you hear it as a note, but then the the echo just has just makes this buzzing texture surround it, like uh like some bees happening or something.
1: Yeah can uh can I give a a few words on what I thought uh and what I started uh thinking about when I started listening to this for the podcast? Absolutely, please yeah. do. Um, yeah. So, uh, I was thinking about. This being, um, you know, this is this is a version of a song, and I I listened to a few different live versions of version uh, as well to kind of see how they might you know change it because um, I think I think we get a lot of people, you know, in the in the age of recorded music, think of a song as kind of the ideal version being what's on the record, the like the studio recording being kind of the de facto thing. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as a performer, I, who's like, who's done recorded music and performed live, I tend to think more that, uh, you know, there's, there is a version of the song that kind of just, uh, like, like kind of like a platonic ideal of the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every time you perform it, uh, you, you have different uh variations and um, distortions that kind of manifest itself in in the live performance um, and I think uh you know that that was something uh seeing this thinking about it um, brought to mind for me um, when I don't know if uh you meant I mentioned this but i recorded I play saxophone with the band Downtown Boys and on our last record Guy Pajoto was the producer um oh so really we were we were working in the studio with Guy uh and there there was this time where I had a um I was recording a, a saxophone solo um or we were doing it with the band and I was like um, the engineer was like all right, are we ready to do uh, overdubs? I was like, "Yeah, I'll go do overdub my saxophone," and I was about to get ready to do it, um, and he was just like, "Hold on a second, let's listen to that back." And he, he says, "Do you really think you can do it better uh, than what was what we did with the live take?" And um, I thought that was uh, that question was like pretty informative, where you know, recording doesn't uh, isn't necessarily. It doesn't have to be capturing like the uh, the ideal, and especially in a band like Fugazi, where things are very collaborative within the environment, and um, musicians are like communicating with each other. It's important to um in to kind of capture that as part of the performance. So um, we kept the live take because you know I would have done something similar, but maybe not necessarily better. And there's you know infinite other ways, uh, to play this song, as long as we have the opportunity to play them. So, yeah. um, there's many, many versions of it to be, to be played. So kind of, yeah. Um, it, it informed a lot of my philosophy, uh, you know, in performance and like, you know, just having like kind of, uh, an acceptance of, a recording just capturing a performance not necessarily the ideal but it's a it's a version that's fascinating uh, i've actually had a
0: pretty similar experience like my producer wasn't Guy but it was it was very much the same I, I i took this guitar solo and i i felt like i sort of like yeah as you say it wasn't the ideal performance um, but I get, I think it's worth mentioning that who, whoever the instrumentalist is, is that's doing the performance is going to be much more sensitive to that than the you know the casual listener. Um, so yeah, the, and the the guy recording me said the same thing. Was like, I don't know. I think I think that was a good take. Like it's it sounds a little bit raw. Like it, it's not like you hit a wrong note. It's just uh, it, it was just a
1: little bit rough around the edges, and that's cool. Yeah, and. I think like, you know, I talk about this being like a lot of it feels like the sounds of like being in a band um, that's going along. And to some degree, like this is what being in a band is where you, you know, you're living with environment throwing you all sorts of things. Um, You know, you're living with all sorts of imperfections and, you know, as skilled as you may be, uh, there's always going to be tensions and agreements in a group and you continue to uh you know carry carry through it um and you know make uh each version special of that
0: yeah and speaking of <laughs> versions of songs i i guess we've been dancing around it but we haven't actually s- said it yet that this is a dub version of long distance runner right yes um <laughs> yeah I, I i maybe that would have been a smart thing to mention off the top but um yeah and, and it's cool like is knowing that and you know sort of like reading about dub music um i i'm wondering if an actual piece of the recording of long distance runner is in this i was uh, you know listening back especially to the beginning and i was like is that like is that the actual recording of a part of long distance runner and they've just put a bunch of reverb on it and it's back in the mix and then they sort of i'm not sure yeah I, I couldn't quite tell, but yeah, I'm I'm wondering. It's it sort of sounds like that, because they they at least do the stylistic thing where it sort of fades in and out gradually at the beginning, and then you know, it's a little bit quiet and, and it's almost as if they're starting. someone is starting to play along with it because at at first the rhythms are not quite in sync with each other. It's as if someone's trying to drum along, play along, and they're they're not quite getting it. But then finally, it's like this—the song version becomes its own song, and they're off doing their own thing.
1: Oh gosh, do you have any way to play that back right now?
0: <laughs> I d- I don't, but if you want to take a minute and listen to it, um, can
1: we that's... pause for a minute to to listen to this? Don't
0: yeah, don't pause the recording, but yeah, okay. if
1: you just want to listen to it, okay yeah, oh yeah, up. I want pause? Yeah yeah, let me take a take a listen. Yeah, it is. Uh... Yeah, you may you may be right onto that um there is sort of yeah kind of a very start and stop and almost like a little chopper, a splice yeah there's a little uh, skip that happens i think yeah i hear like a little splice going on so they must have yeah they were doing some tape tape art uh uh with the beginning of that yeah this this dub here that's Um, cool
0: it is yeah it is really cool and you know um as far as you mentioned sort of live versions of, of them playing this i wanted to mention like the, the history of how they played this live i was going back through the the sets and it seems like the early times that they played this were almost all right after long distance runner like they play that song then they'd go into version um, yeah,
1: it runs perfectly into it. Yeah. It's uh it's another version. <laughs> but then after they I I'd
0: say about halfway through its its um career being played out, which I think they they played it thirty times and change um in the course of their live shows. Uh but like sort yeah, of halfway 34 through. Thirty like, four I counted. Yeah. yeah. And they started branching out and sort of just putting it anywhere in the set, um, not not tethered to long distance runner. Uh and that's that's how they sort of played it for the rest of their career until their very last show, which they closed with Long Distance Runner into version into Glue Man. And uh, let's see, something else you might see if you uh, listen to live versions of this is uh, our friend Jerry Busher playing trumpet along with Guy on clarinet. So they're kind of doing yep. a double sort of a brass and woodwind attack. And something else you might notice is Ian and Joe both switching to backup instruments because although this is based on a little riff from long distance runner uh you might recognize it as, as being down tuned um and it's a little different live and yeah. on the record um on the record it's down tuned even more the album version like that that main bass thing goes like e-flat down to d-flat like the, the d-flat mm-hmm. below the low e on a bass e-flat d-flat e-flat d-flat um Whereas live, it seems like they were just playing in drop D. It would go E to D, E to D, etc. Um, and yeah, you know, for for listeners who don't know, the the lowest notes on a standard tuned bass guitar are, if you tried to play this, it would be you know F sharp and E. So um, so yeah, it's uh, Joe and Ian both swapping instruments live to their backup stuff, and I I guess yeah. that's because they had just uh, down tuned instruments ready to go
1: they got to get a little bit lower <laughs> yeah <laughs> do it
0: yeah I, I i guess that
1: that adds to
0: it right if you want to if you want to trip out a little bit you you want to slow things down you want to space things out i mean getting that down tuned mm-hmm. re-
1: those really low bass notes that sort of helps it i guess yeah it it gives a new a new space and uh you know i think you know music uh music is just going to get lower and lower as, um, as the future goes on. Like, you know,
0: <laughs> really, <laughs>
1: I, I've, you know, we've, we've seen it get lower just like with, you know, there being more subs everywhere we go. There were not as many subs around in the nineties yeah. as there are, yeah. <laughs> there are now, you know, we hear it, you know, it's, uh, so, you know, it, it's part of that, that trend hmm. of getting lower, <laughs>
0: even as like uh phones get better like i've i recently did a massive cell phone upgrade and i like just listening to the crappy little speakers on the phone they're more full range you can actually hear some bass that's an interesting um interesting
1: theory yeah if there's the space to go lower use it so if you have your guitars tuned lower ready to go <laughs> I feel like I had read that in
0: classical music in recent years, that's actually getting higher. Like they're starting to tune up to like a four forty two or something. Cause it sounds like more energetic. Uh, maybe I'm just making this up, but I think I read this. That's good. Um, that's something <laughs> for me to research. Um, Yeah. Let's see what, like what else, what else is there to say about the music here? Um, I guess just in terms of, what it brings to mind for me for some reason i have this overwhelming image like if if i'm just listening to this and thinking of like what what is the movie that this soundtracks what is the what is the scene that's happening i just think of subways i just think of like dirty new york subways and i'm sure it's something to do with the cavernous reverb and the little sort of steam sounds Mm -hmm.
1: um yeah that steam steam engine going on in there (laughs) not not
0: that the new york subways run on steam but
1: uh, you know yeah it's it is yeah it is a shorthand for yeah yeah the the machinery of transportation yeah
0: trains Uh, and undergroundness combined i guess yeah maybe what's bringing this to mind for me
1: so it's like, you know, someone who just ran the New York marathon, then like taking the subway home. <laughs> it's like, like the, yeah. They're, they're the long distance runner. And this is the <laughs> the other side of that. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good visual trick, but yeah. And you know, it just sounds like, you know, it's, it's the joy of jamming, you know, having fun, you know, every, you know, every time Gee picks up the clarinet to do a live version of version, it's, uh it's a it's a new new sounds come out yeah um you know nothing's ever ever the same and uh it's um yeah it's it's just cool to you know celebrate uh that sort of impermanence Hmm. uh, of a performance although you know all the all of these performances were recorded (laughs) so well I guess that leads me
0: perfectly into asking you about ratings (laughs) where on the show, I always like to ask my guests if you can conceptualize all Fugazi songs on, on sort of a continuous scale. Um, w- would you be able to give Version a-, a rating from one star to five stars only in that context?
1: I wonder, well, how many Fugazi songs are there? There's...
0: Oh, well, it depends <laughs> sort of how you count them. <laughs> but uh, I there are, I think, uh, 94 songs that I'm doing episodes yeah. on.
1: I need, yeah, I need an order of magnitude to just to, 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 <laughs> to, to set it yet. I think, uh, they put a different sort of effort into crafting version than they did for, um, you know, their other songs that, you know, that, you know, you know, they have, they have, uh, you know, things to say using, using language. And so this, this they're uh, almost using a different, you know solely the language of music to uh um communicate uh what what they are here so hmm. it is it is hard to compare it directly with um the bulk of their catalog but yes you know yeah. i'll give it I'll give it a solid uh you know i'll put it i'll put it right in the middle there you know <laughs> give it a two and a half
0: yeah i I think I'm similar. I guess I guess I would have to come down at like a, a two. I guess I sometimes I think of this in terms of it being like Fugazi's Revolution Nine. You know, it's like it's the mm-hmm. the one that is clearly experimental. It's clearly the the one that people who are here for you know waiting room are not going to like. But I mean, I certainly love it and respect it as. Um, as this component of Red Medicine, which is this gloriously experimental-sounding album,
1: and I think version, yeah, it's yeah, it's an outlier in many ways. You know, as you said that at the, yeah. the forefront of the, the you know, it's you know, it wasn't even recorded in the same place as the right. the rest of these the songs it goes with. But um,
0: yeah, yeah. So I mean, overall, it's not my favorite kind of music of theirs. But yeah, like I. Usually, the songs where they're doing ex- like sonic experimentation, I do prefer those to like. I guess if my probably my like least favorite kind of Fugazi songs are their more sort of early hardcore type songs before they mm-hmm. have really figured out what kind of band they were. So um, yeah, but but yeah, I, I'll I'll take version over over uh, in defense of humans and that sort of thing. So
1: I yeah, I guess two stars for me. Yeah, when when I met Gee, he said we really figured out how to be a band by the time we made um our last record. So, Yeah. Oh, they that sure did. Is, uh, and yeah, really yeah, you can't argue with that. It's uh, Yeah, I was, you know, lucky enough to get to see them on on that tour. Let me see what our listeners have to have to say about it. What they
0: think about the song um on the Alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page. I asked them and Jenna LaFleur said, This song genuinely freaked me out when I first heard it. The clarinet in particular gives it such an unsettling vibe. Uh, Ray Gun Rochester says, One out of five stars for me. When the blaring monotone clarinet comes in, I hit skip. In my opinion, this should have been on the instrument soundtrack and not a proper album. Oh, that's rough. (laughs) Dick Fenn says, I love the sonic experimentation on Red Medicine and wonder how many more unreleased dub versions and weird jams they have. Um... Yeah. You know, it strikes me that something about this song, too, is the I'm sure the experience of making it for them must be very different from the experience of somebody hearing it. Because like I'm sure from their perspective, they're like, oh, like we took this recording of part of another song and like, look what we made it into. Like we put all this crazy stuff on it. And it's so different. And like, how awesome is that? But like the casual listener hears it and they're just like, "Uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> Maybe it's not so much for me.
1: Um, you know, but it's, you know, it's, I think like that is, um, I feel like that is a good, like knowing your power, uh, uh, of, as a band and your ability to, um, you know, introduce new things to your audience, um, and say, you know, well, you know, you, you know, it, it, it's a little mind opening to, to throw something like this if you know someone's you know trying to you know picking up red medicine thinking they're going to listen to margin walker you know
0: right and of course it's it's a great addition to a live show now and then it's sort of like you know at a fugazi live show you never know what you're going to get they didn't know what was going to happen either really so it it sort of adds to that sort of like wow any anything could happen including sort of like crazy dub experimentation Uh, yeah
1: and i'll say that like these sort of uh like amateurism uh on the clarinet is i think you know everyone is such a great musician in fugazi um and you you know there is almost like a certain virtuosity to the way they they play together but to add um that sort of amateur spirit is uh you know that's what's inspiring about a lot of you know uh, punk and punk uh, adjacent uh, art is that you know anyone anyone can do it mm-hmm.
0: some more uh, listener comments Dallin McDougall says this is a one or two star song for me I like it until the clarinet does its elephant walk uh, I don't even mind the long sustained clarinet notes just that up and down uh, progression just kills it <laughs> for <laughs> me
1: <laughs> is he talking about that like doom doom doom, doom. 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 Yeah. Doom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i like that elephant walk this, um, man,
1: that's a keeper for me
0: uh j j, j douglas van <laughs> romshorst what a name he says uh only uh one of the only skippable tracks in the fugazi catalog one star um uh also michael cowell says um self-indulgent skip it imo so many awesome songs on that album to hear instead Dave Cupp says, definitely not a song I go to outside of the context of Red Medicine as a whole. I think it has its place on the, in the track order as a break before the encore mood setter. One out of five is a standalone track. Three out of five is a transitional element on the album. Will Rockwell Scott, on the other hand, says, four stars, sonic awesomeness. Um, Tom Goebbel, this is interesting. Tom Goebbel says, I'm no cinephile, but this song and its dirty, disorienting vibe always brings to mind the famous drunken montage scene that I've seen parodied in various Matt Groening shows over the years, the scene I have in mind involves a drunken protagonist walking towards camera in front of a black screen while glowing neon signs of the various bars and clubs they visit pass over their shoulders. Um, I hope somebody with a better knowledge of film than me knows what I'm talking about it. Um, I, can, I can totally picture what Tom is talking about there. That's, <laughs> that's it's yeah. illustrative, yeah. yeah along, with, along with subways, I think that's, uh, that would be very good to, uh, a good scene to soundtrack this too. Uh, Thomas Harding says, always enjoyed this one. To me, it sounds a bit like Fugazi playing around in other people's wheelhouses a bit with the overly dubby feel, but also with a bit of Mm -hmm. Nation of Ulysses. Compare the clarinet on version to the Nation of Ulysses Instrumentals N.O.U. Cooking with Gas on the Killer Rockstars comp or N.O.U. Future Vision Hypothesis off of Plays Pretty for Baby. Um, Yeah, cool comparisons. I'll, I'll try to link some of those in the show notes. And uh, finally, Benyamino Gili says, I always liked this one quite a bit. Definitely new territory for the band at the time of its release. I think it was after the third or fourth listen to Red Medicine that I realized it was a slightly dubbish version of Long Distance. I also loved the clip from Instrument showing Guy wearing a mask slowly and hauntingly coming down a darkened hall towards the camera. That always illustrated the vibe I got from hearing this song cool so thanks for thanks for everyone uh weighing in uh, on that um it's like yeah it's it's definitely i I feel like it's definitely a a song that people want to talk about whether or not they end up like really loving it as a fugazi song it's certainly interesting
1: yeah it's great to hear people hate hate it (laughs) too maybe um, it's doing its job if that's if that's the case you know. <laughs> yeah i mean I, i'm sure you know it's yeah. it's
0: yeah, it's like everyone says in in reality shows you know i didn't come here to make friends i'm sure <laughs> this is not a song that fugazi puts on the album thinking oh people uh you know the the listener's gonna love this it's gonna rock it to the top yeah. of the charts uh, I, a lot of parts of red medicine are clearly trying to challenge the listener um mm-hmm. and uh i i love it for that
1: but you know i think it it also just is a good um kind of reflection of you know they they do you know love love dub music and um you know they're probably listening to it in together in the van and appreciating it so it's it's cool to say let's let's try our hand at this i'm Um, I'm
0: just glad nobody was toasting over it yeah (laughs) That would have been a questionable nice. choice at best. Toasting. <laughs> nice. Well, Joe, it's been so cool to talk about Fugazi with you. Let me ask you if you have any plugs. Never mind what's the uh, you know, I- I'm sure in your current line of work, um, pulling up those shellfish, you maybe don't have plugs necessarily, but. Any of your projects, any of the amazing stuff you've done, where can listeners find it or reach you or anything?
1: Yeah, uh, so I I play in the band Downtown Boys um, from Providence, Rhode Island, uh, and yeah, we have our last records on um, Sub Pop, and we uh, recorded a version of the Internationale for an Italian film about Karl Marx's daughter called Miss Marx. Um, that's like a, uh, our latest single, but, um, I have, um, my own, um, sort of like fantasy synthesizer music I've been making sort of informed, uh, a little bit by this process of, uh, Im- impermanence and, uh, improvisation, uh, around my environment. So, uh, that's stuff called Forager that's on my... Bandcamp, Joe de George uh, is where you'd find it. Joe dot George.bandcamp.com, I believe. That's, that's plug in for me.
0: I'll put that in the show notes along with anything else you might want to send me now or if you think of it later. So, yeah, listeners, just scroll down, click away. It's just the usual stuff for me, which is that you can reach me at fugazi, A to Z at gmail.com. And. Hang in there for another couple of episodes. We're really getting toward the end of this podcast. And uh, I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we'll be discussing another deep cut called Waiting Room. Until then, keep your eyes open. <laughs>